You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Hunt of Ore podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 97, Springtime Dishes with John Wallace. On this episode of Hunt of Ore, Nick is joined once again by John Wallace a new regional director for Delta Waterfall. But as we know him, he's the wild game cook. John and Nick catch up since last being on the podcast. They unpack some popular spring forage here in the Midwest, mushroom prep, and incredible spring dishes that are packed full of flavor. This conversation will have you take an extra look at those green patches on the way to your turkey spot on this episode of Huntable. Well, hey, folks, beautiful evening here in Michigan. I tell you what, finally going and being with the kids on the soccer field, not in windy, rainy, cloudy conditions. We had one of our first, like, sunny days. And, man, here in Michigan, that felt really, really good. I did get recruited by the missus, who's the coach. She's the head coach. She called in the uh, the assistant coach, being myself. So I had to run scrimmage with uh, with the boys, and uh, I put my work in, John. I definitely split the crotch of my pants wide open. I'm just not a soccer player, John. I I tried really hard, but football and wrestling's where I'm at. I'm just not a skilled finesse kind of guy. As uh, 
As someone, though, down in Ohio with all the skilled guys from that school down south below the border, (laughs) how are things with your world? I'm talking with uh, John Wallace. He's no longer with Pheasants Forever. We've we've changed gears. He's taken a a sideways jaunt, and he's now with – shoot, I forgot what you were just saying, but it's now with Waterfowl. Yeah, Delta Waterfowl. They'll start there next week as their regional director covering Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, uh, working with the chapters in those three states. And uh, very excited to be part of that that family, uh, that Delta family, and and, uh, to get started. So this is a really recent change. Um, Going from the upland to the the waterfowl, what's going to kind of be one of your – big goals that you're looking forward to this year as you're as you're working with delta um what are you looking forward for our our midwest states is it going to be habitat is it uh is it recruiting waterfowl hunters is it is it is it uh trying to basically build numbers what's uh what's your your big focus on for this year yeah sure so it's uh it's a cliche answer but it's, it's check all those boxes uh you know um Delta waterfowl is huge on uh, duck research and, uh, you know, the ability to produce more ducks over decoys is their slogan. Um, so habitat is always key. Um, you know, there's been a lot of drought uh, kind of out west, maybe in the prairie pothole region. And <clears throat> from what I understand, like 70 percent of all ducks are bred in the prairie pothole region. I think there is has been a lot of water that's come up there recently. So which is good. A lot of ducks are coming back and nesting and um Delta has a first hunt program. So getting a lot of new duck hunters out, um, as a later in life duck hunter, I didn't start duck hunting till my mid twenties. Um, it's something that's probably most, to me, it's one of the most intimidating sports to get into, um, you know, squirrel hunting, small game, that's pretty easy, you know, to get into, um, you know, deer hunting's not too terribly hard either, to be honest, uh, the more intimidating part would be like field dressing and stuff like that. But waterfowl hunting, not only do you have to have access, but you know, not that you need gear, but, you know, decoys and jet sleds and, you know, all that kind of stuff definitely helps. So having a mentor is a big deal to get into duck hunting. So um, just building the region that we've got, creating new chapters, uh, which creates more community awareness. Uh, but yeah, habitat, recruitment, um, and, you know, just education of folks on, you know, how, you know, Delta Waterfowl is doing a lot to put acres on the ground and create more ducks. Awesome. Awesome. Maybe it's a maybe it's a question you guys haven't even had a chance to unpack yet. Um, as a as a domestic poultry farmer on the on the side, that's what my family does. Um, all over the news right now, it, we're talking about that avarian flu. This is like that second strain, and again, maybe I'm hearing it third, fourth hand. But not only is it transmitted through the migratory birds, but now it's really beginning to affect. The migratory birds are you guys finding that or is that something you haven't had a chance to to look at yeah i haven't had a chance to unpack much my first day is uh this coming monday so uh still a few days <laughs> you haven't away. even been in the office yet <laughs> yes uh so that said you know as a um i guess you could call it domestic but as a residential duck owner uh well i got two ducks and about uh 15 or so chickens my wife that's her deal that's her pet uh project um you know, we're not too terribly concerned with it because, you know, we don't, we don't get out or, you know, their ducks aren't, uh, you know, being uh, exposed to anything. But it's definitely something that the Division of Wildlife here in Ohio has mentioned. There's been some, I think, bird kills up maybe near Lake Erie. And 
Um, I'm just not very well versed on it, but it is definitely something that uh, the state agencies, the wildlife agencies are very keen to, and they got their ear to the ground listening to what's going on. So I'll be curious to see, you know, what Delta's uh, here in and, um, you know, just learning more about it. Cause man, if there's uh, people who know about duck research and all those types of things, it's going to be Delta waterfowl. That's their bread and butter. Good, good. Well, I'm hoping uh, between the domestic guys, domestic meat, and the uh, the DNR in whatever fashion that they are in, I hope we can put our heads together and figure that out. Because, I mean, we've gone into full biosecurity with, with our flocks. Um, you know, guys changing boots, every, you know, spraying down all the time, trying to do our best to keep uh, – and we don't we're kind of out of the fly zone here in Michigan just in in where we're sitting our farm but then even just trying to keep keep anything from landing in the field and then setting up shop whether it be a nesting or whatnot it's like we just don't want to have any mixing going on cuz it just mm-hmm. takes it just takes one pile of poop to set in to go from the outside to the inside and it's all it's all over with sure man so no, I wanted to pick your brain on that, but yeah, let's uh, let's continue to open that box when we get there. But uh, John, it's been a while since we've talked to you. Uh, speaking of uh, disease and virus, the last time we talked was in the height of COVID here for uh, for humans. Uh, it was back last December. We were talking about uh, about Christmas and what we were going to be serving up and what we we're going to be doing. And I thought, hey, it's been a long time. I need to get John back in again. What uh, what's been going on with you this past uh, twelve months? How's your how's your spring been going? Yeah, it's been going good. Um, I want to say that that was was that December of twenty twenty. Um, yes, not twenty one, but it was twenty twenty. Yeah, so it, it's been a good a good while for sure. Um, we've been busy. We're busy into the sports right now for sure. It's baseball season. Uh, I do love baseball, but we've got two boys doing that. Take us all over. And then my daughter elected to, um, pass on baseball this year, which hurt my heart a little bit, but she signed up for volleyball. So, Hey, you know, try them all, see what you like. Um, the past few hunting seasons, if you remember the last time we spoke, I think the boys had just laid down five deer, um, well, they laid down four more this last season. And so they've killed nine deer the last two seasons. I've killed squadoosh zero. Um, you know, I just don't have the pressure to kill one cause they've got the freezers full. So again, we're blessed with good private land here in Ohio with my uh, cousin's farm. And then in Missouri, we've got some really good friends who open up their properties. So, um, those were all, um, does we did shoot one button buck. It was, it was the largest button buck I've ever seen. And, um, my son back in Ohio on the last day of firearm season killed his first buck. Nice little one and a half year old, eight point. We've got a nice Euro mount on the wall. Uh, so he was elated. Uh, that's a long time coming for him. Um, my boys had a lot of first experiences this last fall. Um, we've been hunting squirrels with shotguns for the last three or four years, respectively between my two boys, but they've been using shotguns this year. We switched over to the 22, which is a different ball game. And we were in Southern Ohio, which is very, uh, very much Appalachia and very hilly or, you know, a lot of tall ridges. So, you know, it's a lot safer, you know, shots, you know, get good backdrops, make sure you're not skylighting squirrels and man, they were pretty frustrated. Um, and that the boys were, and that's like, that's why I'm bringing you down here to go through all this, uh, patience and aim small and be steady. Um, dove hunting was phenomenal this year. We did have access to, again, a private field on my cousin's place and my middle son who had been hunting does for a couple of years, hadn't been able to connect the dots, you know, hadn't shot one. And, uh, man, on the first hunt that he went out on, he killed eight doves. I killed nine. 
And then throughout the season, he ended up killing 25 doves. It was really awesome. He was 11, you know, so, um, killed 25 doves. He killed his first quail, which happened in Kansas this year. He killed his first pheasant on a pheasants for, or on a, on a youth hunt, uh, here in Ohio. Um, he killed his first duck on a, uh, mentored duck hunt, a wood duck shot it out of the air, um, shot his first rabbit in Kansas this year. Um, and my son, Adam shot his first rabbit on our home place here with my 22 and my old small game vest that I shot my first rabbit in, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, we went to Kansas, did some bird hunting. Went, that was pretty good with some friends of ours. The deer hunting was good. Now, if we could just talk these turkeys into cooperating, like everything else has <laughs> life would be heavenly. Um, a lot of people talk about seasonal depression, you know, in January, February, everything's dead and gray. And well, I tell you what, like there's no worse time of year for me than when I see my social media feeds filling up with people laying down turkeys and I haven't got one yet. It's, <laughs> it's depressing. So I've been getting out after them and uh, we've had some opportunities. My son had a great opportunity in new season and it just turned, it just didn't work out. Um, bird is a little further than I thought and uh, may have been a little flinch on his end and uh, the turkey lived uh, to fly another day. So um, we're still going hard. We're going to try to get after it hard this upcoming weekend. Um, and that's it, man. Like, uh, spring has been turkey hunting and baseball and, um, it's going to continue to be baseball all through the summer. And, um, hopefully we'll knock out the turkeys here soon. They've not killed a turkey yet, either one of them. And I haven't shot one since, um, 2018. So I've been a little bit of a drought here too. So we're all due. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I love turkey hunting, man. When it really comes together, it's the best thing that there is in my opinion. So, um, yeah. How's your turkey season been? Well, um, I sit out the turkey season, uh, mainly because my approach is, is I, I got a spot and I, I set up on this post and it's real shaded cause it's inside the barn. And then I just pick the one that I want and I grab it and away, away we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so I play the domestic game, but I end up taking care of a lot of guys who end up getting their bird. So uh, I walk them through plucking the bird, uh, going with like plucking by hand. Um, last year, I helped a guy do that for the first time ever. And uh, he was a little nervous on it. He was like, how long is this going to take? We got to get the bird cool down. And I'm like, hey, we got it inviscerated. You could you got a little bit of time here and we just started, you know, little bit by little bit plucking the feathers. And, uh, he, he enjoyed that process of it. He was end up smoking his breast, uh, with the skin on. So he really enjoyed that aspect of it too. Um, just be able to keep that, that, uh, that moisture on in. So unfortunately I take off the hunting aspect of it, but at the same time, like you said, like we're into sports right now, I got boys doing the double duty of soccer and baseball so it's one of those things like each night of the week has been busy but we want to get out and we start we want to start doing a little bit more foraging whether it's going to be you know we're looking at mushrooms um here at uh let's get this out of the way here here at the turkey farm uh pheasant backs are big but um not a whole lot of morels they're real Real sketchy right around our area. So it's been one of those things where uh, we just kind of take our licks where we can. But, yeah, we kind of take this spring season off. So as far as chasing things, it's there's not a lot of that. But we do like to cook the stuff that we've already chased, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, the morel mushrooms have eluded me since moving back to Ohio uh, back in the fall of 19. Um, 
just haven't found, you know, those honey holes yet. Um, but I've always in my Turkey bag, I have a nice uh, mesh bag and, uh, it's ready to load down. If I ever stumble into them, um, I did find some pheasant backs the other day while Turkey hunting, um, always makes a nice skunker hunt, you know, if you can leave with a little something, um, and actually found some ramps too. Um, and so we can get into like, you know, kind of what it is we do with those, or for those that aren't familiar with them, you know, what they are. Um, but yeah, um, you know, another one too is garlic mustard. It's pretty prevalent around here. It's kind of a pioneer species when you, when you remove or disturb the soil and there's a lot of sunlight, this garlic mustard comes up and you can just Google garlic mustard pesto. And we made some a couple of years ago and it's really good. And it's really simple to make, um, Parmesan cheese, olive oil, garlic mustard, garlic, um, I don't think I'm missing too much. It's really not a lot of ingredients, just your standard pesto. You can mix ramps in too, because you can make ramp pesto. Um, so I did get some garlic mustard the other day and I'm going to be making some pesto here soon. Um, so yeah, it's uh get, get what you can when you can. Cause you know, morel season is a short window and ramps is a very short, small window for those that are lucky enough to have spots where you can find those. Um, my boys, you know, love foraging. If, you know, if, if they're familiar with, you know, what could be around, you know, I try to educate them on that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, my in-laws actually like the pheasant back mushrooms. I didn't tell them what they were until they tried it. And, you know, they're pretty mild, but yeah, we made a nice dipping sauce and it was, it was a home run. So good deal. Let's take a quick step back. Um, we were talking about that garlic mustard and we're talking about the, and I think the, the ramps can even fit into this. You mentioned earlier that that you make up that pesto and it's something that's just great. You spread that either on, on something you've eaten or excuse me, some you know piece of meat that you got, or even on a piece of toast. But you mentioned you were, you were freezing that as well. Does that stuff pop back to life as well as it's made fresh? Like, do we find yeah. ourselves here being able to take something that we get in the springtime and extend the life of it into other parts of the season? Yeah, for sure. So I only, I've only made it one time. And, um, it was in the spring of 2020 and I, I have, uh, nine acres here at the house and we did a lot of honeysuckle removal. So the garlic mustard came on like gangbusters. I mean, it's like, you couldn't pick all of it. And, uh, so we made a bunch and, uh, we froze it in ice cube trays and then, uh, individually wrapped it into parchment paper, um, or froze it. And then basically pretty much individual chunks into parchment paper and just put them in the freezer. And we still have a few left. And uh, I would say 100%, it tastes nearly as good as the day we put it in there. Um, again, it's very simple ingredients, so I don't think it's anything that really necessarily goes rancid. Um, and again, I think I just Googled the, you know, the first garlic mustard that I could find, and it was pretty simple and kind of fit my style. Um, but yeah, what we use it for is, you know, we don't, we do eat a lot of wild game at the house, like pretty significant amount, but we do buy chicken. And, um, so we'll have a chicken dish, chicken Alfredo, and we just, you know, let those things thaw out. We put one or two little ice cube size portions of pesto in there, stir it around and it's super nice. So nice. I love that. I love that. You know, if you get a turkey once in a while, you might not have to buy as much chicken. Yeah. No <laughs> joke. No joke. Zinger right there. I will say just going back to you, uh, plucking those birds, I've only shot one Jake and, um, I decided since it was a younger bird, I plucked the whole thing, brined it and smoked it and, uh, sorry, roasted in the oven and it was phenomenal. So definitely worth your time. If you've never smoked, uh, plucked a bird to pluck it, brine it and then roast it or smoke it. And you will not be disappointed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
Hank Shaw, uh, the Godfather. He has he has an article where he talks about hanging um, either upland birds and waterfowl and actually aging them with the the feathers still on. And most of the time, well, with the big birds, you've inviscerated those. Your Canadian geese, your your turkeys, you want to gut them out, uh, get their temperature down. But your your pheasants, your quail, uh, your smaller upland birds. Um, He's got literature that says you just hang them, you know, either by the neck or by the feet, whatever that is. But a couple days just being able to hang them lets, I mean, not only the enzymes work on the muscles on the inside, but it allows that skin to relax as well. So when it comes to your pluck job, oh, it's just so much easier to get out, especially those big flight feathers, a little bit of relaxed skin at there, and you're going to be able to then pull those out much nicer. Yeah, he goes he's, in. Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, he is the expert for sure. If I'm not mistaken, on those smaller birds, he leaves the guts in too, which uh, the temperature and everything's got to be right and whatnot. But uh, I believe he said that he's seen or he's re- written about where you leave them hang as long until the the head pops off, basically, until like they fall down, which is really wild. Um, but I know one of his big sayings is always, "Your nose knows," right? So if like if it smells absolutely terrible, then you may have messed up the process, but if it doesn't smell terrible once you've, you know, dressed it and whatnot, then you're probably good to go. And you're probably going to feel all the, our taste and, and yeah, feel all those benefits, you know, through mouthfeel and whatnot. So, um, yeah, definitely look into it. You know, I'm sure it could either be in his pheasant quail cottontail book or his hunt gather cookbook, or just go to his website. But yeah, he's, um, he's the king of aging for sure. I, I do age my deer. I try to, you know, age my birds in the fridge. I don't necessarily hang them. I say I age them. I'm just lazy and I don't want to process them right away. So that if they're in the <laughs> fridge for three or four days, I'm just aging them. <laughs> exactly. And then you're like, huh, these feathers, they're just coming out so nice. Like I, maybe I'll just be lazy from now on. Yeah, for sure. Well, good deal. So we've, we've touched a little bit on, on turkeys and even on our, our waterfall there. And then we started to kind of transition there into, we were talking mushrooms and I wanted to get, a little bit on that from you because being new to the foraging aspect, I've wanted to use more and more uh, forage around, you know, not only the state parks that I have near me, state land, but at the same time from the farm. And I've been able to identify, uh, like we were talking about those, those pheasant back mushrooms, but I know that morels around the area, I don't necessarily have a spot like you, but I do have a, I, I do have people. And that's been my biggest thing. They're expensive. You got to buy them off these people. And so I'm always like, well, they're not deer hunters. So there happens to be a little, uh, well, hey, thank you for gifting me this. Maybe I will gift you something here in the future. So we've we've got a little link going on there. But at the same time, like, how do I go about preparing some of these mushrooms? We were talking some of the stuff you want to soak, some of the stuff you don't want to soak. Kind of walk me through when it comes to just some common mushrooms, basically those big two, pheasant backs yeah. versus morels. What's kind of what? What should I be looking at there? Yeah, well, I'll preface by saying I am no expert in the fungi department. Um, so that said, the two that I'm most familiar with are the two that you just referenced, um, and morels. You know, they're a hollow cavity. Um, they've got a lot of dimples in them and there typically tends to be a lot of little crawly bugs and whatnot. And, um, so I will likely split those in half long ways 
and I will then soak them in a little bit of salt water. The salt helps either kill or at least get those bugs moving outside of that water. Um, and then you can kind of take running water from your sink and allow it to just slowly pour into your bowl. And it'll, the, the water that flows out of the, the bowl as those bugs and debris and dirt are on top of that water, they'll just flow out of the bucket or flow out of the bowl, whatever you've got in your sink. So you're that's kind of what I you're not actually adding like a salt or anything to like make a brine or anything. This is literally just cold tap water that you've just um, allowed yeah, to I, soak I, into them. I mentioned salt there in the early going um, for those, just because I think it does help either kill or really kind of like get those bugs to say, Hey, I got to get the heck out of here. You know, I don't, I don't know the science behind it. I'm not the, I'm not uh you know, a wordsmith or anything or know how all that works, but I use a little bit of salt and I think that helps you get those bugs out of there, but I split them long ways. Sometimes I will take morels and I will cut them into rings and I have dehydrated those that way before and, um, rehydrated morels are good. They're definitely not as good as they are fresh. There's some theories behind, you know, some people kind of par fry them and then freeze them on parchment paper and then freeze them and kind of refry them when they, when they get out. And that does seem to work. Okay. But I have dehydrated them. I know other people have dehydrated them. Um, when you rehydrate them by pouring boiling water over top of them, some of that flavor and whatnot does make its way into the broth. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifled barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit Tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. So, so at this point, we've we've taken the morels, and we know you can do things that are fresh uh, with those morels, whether it be sauté, whether it be uh, fry. I, I don't know. I look at that, and I'm kind of like, man, sauté was is going to be the absolute be all end all with the morel. I mean, I'm sure there's a hundred million opinions. But before we get too far off that track, we were talking about that point that that you're soaking them, and you can have you know you're pouring that bo- or excuse me, we've dehydrated them. You get to that boiling water where you're pouring them over, trying to rehydrate your morels. You're in a sense starting to build this beautiful broth. That's that's kind of what you were leading in at the, at that point. Second, you want to expand on that yeah. for me there, John? Yeah, it it it's um pretty crazy. It takes on a pretty rich brown color pretty quickly um it just comes out of the mushrooms um it's very bland right there's no salt in the mushroom so you know adding salt and the next thing you know if you were to add you know the kind of core ingredients your celery your carrot your onion your uh herbs and things of that nature it would be it would make a a fabulous stock um but it's super clear 
because it's just water with the mushroom essence. I don't know what you call it there, but it, it definitely looks very Hank Shaw-esque. It's a very clear broth. Um, it's got a dark, rich color to it. And uh, yeah, you could just expand from there. I'm, I'm by no means, you know, uh, like I said, an expert in that, but I have, you know, done it. I've done it a few times where I've dehydrated them. Again, my problem is I need someone to lead me to the mushrooms. I am too frugal to pay $50 a pound or whatever the going rate is. <laughs> it is too rich for my blood. So, yeah. We went to a restaurant for a friend's birthday and it ends up being a very high class restaurant, downtown Grand Rapids. And it's, I mean, there's there's wine bottles on the shelf that I can't even, A, pronounce, but B, afford just the bottle itself. Like, I can't even touch it. And they they went through a bunch of these ditch dishes, and one of them happens to be morels on toast. That was one of the dishes. And someone from the, from the group was like, well, let's get this as an appetizer. And lo and behold, it's, I mean... It's probably an inch thick piece of, uh, it wasn't sourdough. I think it was just like, I think it was a white style bread, like a country style bread, big old thick piece of it that was, it was toasted really nice. There was a mountain of morels that were all over this piece of toast. And then they had two soft boiled eggs that were on top. And so cracking, I mean, just basically breaking those open and having that yolk spill onto the toast, you're having that yolk and you're having those sautéed uh, morels. And it was like, man, this is absolutely delicious as an appetizer. But you're exactly right. It ran right up around the $40 mark just for that one round of appetizer. It was like, don't nobody leave a single drop of anything on that plate. We need to clean this thing off as much as we can. That sounded heavenly. I think the word there to describe that is uh, umami, I believe they say, like, you know, with just the savory flavors and the richness of all that sounds amazing. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that would be high class living right there. But it was definitely just a simple preparation of sure, that mushroom. Sure. It's totally letting it sing out. And that's where I say with like the the saute at that point, like people go to such lengths to find these because they are such a just a beautiful tasting morel or excuse me, beautifully tasting mushroom. Do we really want to coat it in a batter? And yeah, I know you can do that with like portobello fries and that really does do a good job. But that's a much more substantial mushroom versus yeah. the morel. It's, it's quite delicate. And so that's where I go with kind of like, man, just butter in a pan. Don't go through through bread in it. Now, at the same time, just like you were saying, I'm not a full expert in that. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's something with the bread and the fry. You're going to have people that they're in their trenches on however they like to prepare them. Some people probably gasped when you said you, you dehydrate them. How sure, how sure. Dare yeah, you? How dare you? Yeah, how dare, how dare you? you? I think it definitely comes back to how you grew up. Uh, with a lot of things, right? Um, that that goes across many avenues, but just it's, it's nostalgia. Um, I think morels taste as good as they do because it's the first mushroom of spring. You know, like I'd argue chanterelle mushrooms, which come around in late July and August, are better tasting mushrooms. Again, you know, you may have someone pull out their sidearm and off <laughs> you right there, you know. But um, morels, like I don't mind dusting them in flour um, or seasoned flour. Um, it's a very light coating at the end of the day because I don't I don't uh, egg wash or nothing. It's literally just 
a, a dusting of flour and it provides a little texture and it doesn't take away from the mushroom. I do know a very common practice is to dust them, egg wash them, and then re-dredge them either in flour or breadcrumbs or whatever. And it, it just seems too much, unless you had a very large morels, right? I just feel like the ratio of mushroom to breading is, is not um, respectful to the, to the morel, right? It just, it overpowers it for sure. If you're looking to introduce a newbie, it'd be a, probably a great preparation. Um, but in my case, it's just like, this is how they are. This is how you're going to eat it. Or there's more for me, you know, <laughs> let's, uh, let's kind of put the, 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 uh, cover closed on, on the morel for a moment. And let's jump over to the humble pheasant back or the, what you call it, the, the Druid's saddle. Yeah. The that, dryad saddle. Dryad yeah. saddle. It's humble, humble mushrooms, a good, uh, description of that mushroom for sure. Yeah, he gets, or she gets, or it gets totally overshadowed by that whole rush. And at the same time, you can find these mushrooms, I think, a little bit more periodically throughout the year. But we do start to see them pop more here in the spring, just like with every mushroom. Just everything's coming. All the fruiting bodies seem to come up. And so here comes these uh, these pheasant backs. It's, and as we were talking earlier, too, it's a more subtle uh flavor to these things and in fact it has a surprising aroma that you wouldn't expect from from anything else when you're yeah. when you're looking for these pheasant backs talk to me what you're looking for because there's some specific things you want to know about about these things yeah for sure so i would say for those that may not be familiar with the term dryad saddle mushroom or a pheasant back mushroom a quick google search and you will realize you have stumbled upon this mushroom many a times in your treks through the woods um, and again, we've referenced it, but we'll, we'll make sure we, we say it uh, again is, you know, identification of mushrooms is critically important. There's a lot of mushrooms that can absolutely, uh, end your life. And that's not a joke. Like they can really mess you up. You can have allergic reactions, whatever. So I really only try to stick to the surefire mushrooms that I know of. There's some false morels too, by the way. Um, again, another plug for Hank Shaw. Uh, he's got a private group on Facebook called hunt, gather, cook. And if you're not in that group, um, request to join it or look for other really well-ran mushroom foraging groups because you can, if you have any question, you can throw it out there to these groups and there's scientific ways of determining which mushrooms are which through spore prints and through all kinds of different things. So when in doubt, don't eat it. Um, but a dryad saddle or a pheasant back is pretty, uh, I don't think there's too many other like, whether I say competitors or uh, lookalikes that could really get you into trouble. Um, but they only are edible when they're super duper fresh. Uh, morel, when they're not fresh, obviously they're dry and they look decrepit. But on a pheasant back, they're very, very tender and fragile and soft. Um, and when they're not in their prime, they are as hard as wood. They're basically those saddles that you see, the saddle mushrooms on a tree. And um, when you get a fresh one, they have a distinct smell, which is smells like a watermelon rind. So I know that sounds really wild to say that a mushroom smells like a watermelon, but it does. And the flavor even kind of comes through and it sounds wild, but it actually works. Um, and I do keep it, they're, they're all things considered, they're a fairly mild tasting mushroom. And so I keep it pretty simple. A lot of people say you need to try to in, uh, influx some flavor into there, which yeah, if that's what you're into, by all means, you know, add, add something. I find that if you use a dipping sauce, 
could really help. So I made some the other day, again, I had a slow turkey hunt, but found a few um, pheasant backs. It was funny enough. I actually saw them. I reached down to grab them and I heard a hen yelp like 10 yards away. And I froze and I look over and damn if there wasn't a hunter right there. And I kind of laughed out loud a little bit. I had to, but I, I snuck down, got them, uh, got the pheasant backs and boogied out of there to not interrupt his hunt. But, um, all I did was you, you don't want to bring these home and age them, right? You don't want to bring them home, for, forget about them for a few days or a week in the fridge. You want to try to eat them that day or maybe the next day. If you're not going to eat them that day, um, I like to use just wet paper towels to keep them moist. Um, again, difference in these mushrooms, I won't soak them in water unless for some reason they seem that they're overran with either bugs, which normally isn't the case. They could be in a floodplain or something. So maybe their um, their little pores and such are filled with dirt. But generally I try to use maybe, um, there are specific like foraging brushes that come on some of these knives. I don't have a fancy knife like that. I just use paper towel or uh, maybe I'd find an old toothbrush that I could repurpose for mushrooms, but uh, try to get the dirt out of it. But generally speaking, I don't soak those. Um, same would go with Portobello's button mushrooms. I learned that from Alton Brown on the Food Network is, you know, when you can don't soak them, just use a paper towel to get that dirt off. So I sliced them up, um, I don't know, three eighths inches wide, you know, um, into little strips and I simply just dusted them in seasoned flour. The flour was seasoned with just salt and pepper. Um, I like to use like table pepper instead of fresh crack just because it's a finer grain um, and it actually sticks and it stays within the flour. And then I used an egg wash, like half water, half egg, uh, beat up really well. And then I put it back into the flour mixture um, and then ultimately dusted them with a little bit more salt uh, to taste at the end. And they were fine, plain. It just tasted like a fried mushroom, but very mild. I said they need a sauce. So I, I got a few table. I posted it recently on my page. You can find the, the again, the simple recipe, but it was basically a spicy Creole mayonnaise. And it was like three tablespoons of mayonnaise, a, a teaspoon of sriracha, a quarter teaspoon of Creole seasoning. And like, that was it. And it was pretty good, uh, pretty basic. Funny enough, we were making pork chops that night for dinner. And I had a sweet pepper sauce that's called Shafe's Wild Game Sauce. And I mixed it with soy sauce and minced garlic. And I was glazing the pork chops with it. And I said, what the hell? I'm going to take this mushroom and dip it in there. And it was heavenly. It was just heavenly. So the, the mushroom is good about, I don't say absorbing the flavor, but it's a very neutral mushroom. So like really it'll, it goes well with so many different things. And my in-laws were in town. They're city folks. And they're always super suspect and uh, skeptical of what I'm serving for dinner. They're super suspect. And I've kind of built their trust up pretty good. So I try not to, to take advantage of that. But they enjoyed them. I said, they're very mild. And I showed them a picture, uh, the picture that I took as I harvested the mushrooms. And they they kept coming back. And uh, so that was a good win to uh, to get some skeptics bought in because they're very mild. They're not a, like a portobello mushroom. I love portobellos. Some people don't like that earthiness. Um, that's why they kind of tend to go more of the white button mushroom is kind of the mild domestic mushroom, I guess. Well, these are well more mild than that. You mentioned humble earlier. They're maybe not as homely as the puffball, but, uh, <laughs> you know, they're a, they're a step above the puffball. And for the record, you can eat puffballs, but um, I'd recommend maybe you try it one time to say you did it. Um, that's about where that goes. It's like the tofu of mushrooms. It is. It is. With the, the pheasant back, yeah, my... The, I've got two ways that, and again, mine are super easy. I mixed them in with scrambled eggs, and it just offered a little bit of like a, like a toothiness or a chunk in the the uh, the scrambled egg. I yeah. enjoyed it. 
Uh, my wife, not so much. She liked it more in my application that I literally, yeah, sauteed them up in butter. I didn't really have a direction that I wanted to go with, but I took those really soft parts and sauteed those in butter, and that's what I put then the steak on top of. So it was almost like I cooked the steak, and then I set it on top of the mushroom. So all the drippings, like you said, it just absorbs whatever that was. It was almost like extending the flavor of the steak into the few bits so you didn't have those little drippings that were just sitting on the plate, they had all been, you know, dripped onto and absorbed in by those uh, pheasant packs. So I really like just having it as basically a bedding or something for the steak to set on, maybe presentation focused, but at the same time I was like, man, I'm going to keep a few of these around just for that purpose there. You know, that way I'm not missing any little bit of, of that steak. Sure. Well, you you said something there that uh, is near and dear to me. So we have chickens here at the house, and I love eggs. Um, I love fried eggs, scrambled eggs, eggs benedict. Poke. You mentioned anything eggs I like, but I like a good wet scrambled eggs, you know, and uh, morels. That's like kind of indulgent to put morels in, in there, but ramps go really well with scrambled eggs. Your pheasant backs obviously would go, uh, you know, scrambled eggs are a great vehicle for that kind of stuff, whether it's leftover steak all kinds of stuff. So yeah, that's one of my favorite next day meals is, is including something in that. And again, sauteed mushrooms with the butter, salt, pepper. And if, again, if you have some ramps, throw them in there. And again, just because it's springtime, that kind of elevates that as well. Well, good deal. Good deal. Well, John, we're kind of getting into the crescendo of this episode. We've come down to our two-dish breakdown. In this breakdown, I'm going to have you. I'm going to just. I'm going to basically going to give you a category. Or I'm going to give you a scenario, and I want you to talk about the dish that you would either make or create or wish you had at that moment. Um, at the end, I do want to basically unveil a dish that I've been working on since. Wow, when did we make them? I think it was. I think it was late January, so I have been holding back on a springtime dish. I think I mentioned it on my personal page way back in January, but I've been kind of keeping this one under wraps, and I'm going to unveil it to you if you're if that's okay right. with you. That's great. So there, there's my tease, but now, now it's back to you, and we're going to do this tube dish breakdown. Um, you haven't gotten a turkey as of late, but I know that you have a turkey dish that when the gobbler goes down, this is going to be the first dish that you are going to make. Talk to me about your turkey dish that is about to happen this year. For those that can't see, my fingers are crossed <laughs> and I'm uh, praying to the turkey gods. Wait, um, you are a baseball guy. Let me yeah. Let me Get fix the, the hat cap. here. Rally cap. <laughs> Let me turn my Delta hat inside out. Golly, we got to have some change of pace here. So uh, this weekend's the weekend, buddy. Uh, It's going to happen. So the beauty of a turkey is there's obviously a lot of meat, and there's a lot of different things you can go. Uh, There's a lot of different directions. So you've got the legs and the thighs, which every hunter should be keeping those. If if you're not, tisk tisk, and there's plenty of things to go out there and look about what you could do with those. The breasts, I like to uh, freeze those and save those for later parts of the year, but the tenderloins is what I uh, am going for first. 
And for reference, uh, for a deer, I typically put the tenderloins back and I use them for later in the year, which is again, sometimes against the grain from, from some folks, but I'm taking those tenderloins and I'm going to marinate them in pickle juice. So that may sound wild to some folks, but dill pickle juice, I learned that tip originally from David Draper. He's a great outdoor writer and contributor and a huge wild game cook. And um, he's feral fork on Instagram. Um, and so great account, but just marinate them straight up in pickle juice. And then you can season them uh, with your favorite, you know, seasoning, but I wouldn't go too heavy because there's a lot of sodium and salt in that pickle juice. Um, and then you can, I like, again, lightly dust them in flour and, um, you know, maybe egg wash again and, and, and bread them, but just a light dusting of flour. And if that's it, if I don't have any morels, that dish by itself is fine. But if I've got morels, I'm sauteing morels in butter and I'm throwing them on top as that presentation, as you mentioned, um, and whether or not I can find feral asparagus or wild asparagus, I'm going to put wild asparagus on there. If not, I'm going to go buy store-bought asparagus. And to me, like that is a celebratory meal. Um, and again, if I, if I've got family over or my boys are now getting big enough to where we, you know, those two tenderloins aren't going to serve our family. We'll take some of that breast and we'll chunk it up for again, turkey nuggets. And we'll do the same application, marinate in pickle juice, dredge in flour, fry it up ever so simply. And, um, like, I don't want to say my mouth's watering, but it's just like, I'm so overdue for having that dish. I'm so ready. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I love the pickle juice. Um, I've been using that on bluegill. Uh, I had heard it from a separate route. Uh, somebody had leaked to me that that's what Chick-fil-A does with all yep. their sandwiches. And so, yep. you know, I, I saw people done it with, yeah, with turkey, with chicken, with you know, you name it. And I happened to be making bluegill one night for the boys, and I was like, "What would 15 minutes in pickle juice do to my bluegill fillets?" And oh man, I that's the way that I'm doing it from now on. It doesn't change the flavor of the of the bluegill by any means. It's still so light and flaky, but it just I don't know. It just makes that little fillet pop that it all, I'm not just getting the crunch from the breading on the outside that I'm actually tasting that meat from the inside. So even as something as little as that, it really does make a real good thing. But man, using that on a, on a tenderloin from a Turkey. Oh man. I wish they had four of them. I'll share with you a, a kind of a pro tip or a chef hack. Um, I haven't done it in a while, but you know, you get to the end of a bag of a potato chips and you've got the crumbles down there and I hate to waste them. And sometimes you could just dump it right down the gullet. You know, it could be over flavorful or over salty, but I like to kind of maybe save the bottoms of those bags and I'll use that as my fish breading. So make sure they're really crumpled up. So you can imagine a bluegill filet marinated in pickle juice and then uh, coated with like plain potato chips, maybe salt and vinegar, maybe a dill pickle, but instead of a fish breading or a fish fry, Use those uh, potato chips uh, left over in the bag that are too small to eat. You know, use those as you're breading for your fish. Oh, man. And I'm a Lay's guy. I love the thin, crispy chips, but it does. You end up with a ton of loss at the bottom. No more loss anymore. I like this. Yeah. We're all and, about uh, self-sustainability, and if, it's, if it means I got to repurpose my chips, I'm in with it. Yeah, you could use the same bag. Drop your fish in there and, and dredge them right in the in the fish or in the uh, chip bag. And I grew up for what it's worth. Plain. Um, I grew up with a small company down here called Mike Sells Potato Chips. But using yellow mustard on my plain potato chips. If you're not doing that, sitting on the couch, dollop and yellow mustard on your plain chips, you're missing out. 
I'm gonna have to do that. See, I'm a I'm a mustard on hash browns guy. It, there's something about the vinegar that I need. And yeah, everybody gives me the same look. They're like, no, no, you're supposed to use ketchup. It's, I've never used ketchup on my hash browns. It's always been mustard. And, you know, in Canada, one of the most popular flavors is ketchup flavored potato chips. But like mustard flavored potato chips has never caught on. I'm, I'm throwing that secret out there to the world as much as I'd love to claim the millions on that. If someone else takes it and runs with it, Lays, if you're listening, mustard-flavored potato chips. <laughs> There's got to be some throwback. There's got to be something for old John here. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. So we got through our first dish, our first turkey dish. It's going to be cutlet that's brined in pickle juice, served with all of our spring favorites. We're going for the asparagus. We're going for the morels topped on top. Um, in fact, I'll post the picture uh, on our Instagram along with uh, this episode. But yeah, the picture you had of those reconstituted uh, morels just blanketing over the top of it, like mm, that is a dish that just screams to be eaten, John. For sure. All right. Our second one. This one kind of it, it opens up, but it also becomes a little bit more difficult. I want something that just we've already talked about a springtime indulgence with with all the things that you had mentioned, but give me a springtime dish that just screams springtime, but is just going to leave me fully satisfied. What direction are you going in? Yep, it's um, it's super simple. Um, we ate this to celebrate uh, my new uh, career path with Delta Waterfowl, kind of a celebratory meal, um, but fried crappie so crappie is a springtime fish and uh just simply breaded i like using andy's uh breading andy's fish breading uh the red bag i guess they call it and um, so fried fish with either french fries or tater tots um and i like i love green beans with my fried fish i'm just weird like that um so for me it's fried fit fried crappie specifically I mean, this time of year, we're starting to, you know, get into bluegill fishing. Like we're just now, we're fair weather fishermen. So when May comes around and that warmer weather hits is when we're filleting panfish. But for me, it's fried crappie, French fries or tots and green beans. And I'm getting sick. Like I'm eating so much of it. I'm going to be sick to my stomach uh, because it's that good. I can't think of anything better. Like one of those first like 70 degree days, a belly full of crappie and the lightest light beer that you can get. You know, you're you're pulling up your bush, you're pulling up your your coors. I don't think anything matches better with fried fish than, you know, some macro distillery. We're not even trying to get crafty on it. Just go with one I, of those. 100%. I did have a bush light the other day, but I will say a Miller High Life on that 70 degree sunny day, a Miller high life with fried fish, uh, puts me in a special place for sure. <laughs> I love it. That does springtime indulgence. I can't think of anything better. You, you hit the nail directly on the head. All right, John. So I've been holding this one back for a little while and not because, uh, not because I didn't want to show it off right away, but I felt like it didn't get its full, um, it, it didn't fully come to realization until now that it is springtime. So this past January, my, my brother-in-law got into making pasta. Like he's actually got himself the roller and he's rolling out the pasta and he's trying to do different ragus. And he was kind of posting to me, he goes, Hey, do you want to make like a, like a venison ragu? 
And I said, actually, I want to take it one step further. I save the liver off of my big October dough, and I want to do ravioli. And he was like, okay, I've never done stuffed pasta. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what this is going to do. And I'm like, I'm, I'm full feet in. This is what I've been yeah. thinking about. And so I unpacked this whole this whole process that I I just needed some help with the pasta making, but the filling was going to be a venison uh, liver mousse with onion. I tried to find leek, and I couldn't find leeks in January, or at least ones that I didn't want to use anyway. But I had I had a bunch of these nice white Vidalia onions, so I ended up doing a liver and onion uh, mousse, and he pressed out all this uh, sheet pasta for me and we found a form so I actually all we had to do was use a rolling pin so I put one in and it made the little dimples and I I cut the corner of a Ziploc bag and I piped it all into the little wells put the second sheet onto it rolled the rolling pin over and it perforated these things froze them all immediately so that I could then save them for other times but at the same time just to hold their their shape and I cooked those up some for some friends in a brown butter sage sauce. I wanted something light and delicate because those little raviolis were going to be so so pungent. I mean it it doesn't taste like liver and onions like like how traditionally you would have it. It really does hit sweet. I mean I I put some liquor in there. There's some brandy in there that really sweetens that up, but nice. Oh my goodness. It's it's an explosion of flavor positive uh deliciousness it's umami it's earthy it's i can't get enough of it and the sage worked really well in the brown butter sauce because it just kind of offered a little bit of this like peppery note on the side and i thought no the way that this needs to be served up is if we're going to go springtime with it we pull we pull the sage we add the ramps and we add the morels into that brown butter sauce and so I'm currently waiting to get my hands on both of those. And then we're making that up for me and my wife's like little mini date night. If we can find a way oh, yeah. to just get together, even if it's on a Wednesday or something like that is going to happen. So now it's just a waiting game to get those two items in my hand. For sure, man. Now that sounds again, very decadent, very umami. Um, it'll be special because there's a lot of prep and work that's gone into that. So hopefully your wife appreciates it as much as I know you will. Um, my wife and I tested a recipe for Hank Shaw going back to him. It was a liver dumpling recipe and you could either serve it in a broth, um, or with sauerkraut. And, um, it was heavenly. I think he's got the recipe in his buck, buck moose book. Um, but it was very palatable to my wife. And again, she's a super, like super skeptic of eating organs and, uh, things of that nature. And, uh, so yeah, liver doesn't have to be what you may be thinking it is. Um, it, 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 yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing your full review on that and, uh, seeing the pictures. Good deal. Good deal. That was my, my, from the October dough was like, I'm not going to be intimidated. Like it is intimidating to take on another organ. And I've done the liver and onions, and we've done that, and I've, I've tried to incorporate in other things, and I was like, this is the one where I figure something out. And so trying a couple different avenues, like a liver mousse, like if you're trying to figure out a way to add liver into your diet, but not necessarily like a slab of it. Sure. A mousse is a very, 
easy way to incorporate into your your palette, but at the same time, the the folks that are around you, if you would love to share that, that is an easy way to do that. It's a little, I don't know, PG for versus a, a slab of liver. Sure, I made a goose. I made a deer liver pate once, and I don't know if technically it qualifies as a pate. It was like what I would call a redneck rendition of it. I just basically pureed it and added what I thought would be good in there, and used it as a spread. It's very edible. Like it was very good. Um, and so, yeah, it's worth trying as a hunter. And you know, these recipes are out there to get out of your comfort zone and give it a shot. You know, like if you don't try it and it just stays in the gut pile, you know, sure you're helping coyotes or whoever else, but if you attempt it and the first bite is awful and you throw it out, you know, at least you can say you attempted it, you know, but you may be very pleasantly surprised. And again, try to find a tried and true recipe. Right. And I would suggest that just straight up liver and onions may not be the best, the best option. Cause that's all in, you're all in on liver at that point. You know um, there's other opportunities and this seems like a real subtle way to introduce it into a dish where it's not the star necessarily, but it is forward in the dish. Um, so yeah, give it a shot. Um, you know, and for what it's worth, you don't want to try it. We take our sometimes and chunk it up and use it as catfish bait. Like if you get a big old dough or, a buck or something like just take it and slice it in, uh, into chunks appropriately and uh, freeze it as catfish bait. We do that. And uh, we may not catch the most catfish to be honest with you, but the kids love the whole process of using bait that they've made. So self-sustainability, any little bit that you can use that you don't now have to go buy something else, you know, that's, it's just recycling from, from one hobby to the next. That's a, that's a very good point. So I appreciate that, John. For sure. I enjoyed it, man. This has been great. Where where can my listeners, we've already talked about uh, once when you were with Pheasants Forever, but where where can we find you now? And uh, what's your handles so that we can continue to follow along? Yeah, man. Uh, well, on Instagram, I'm Wild Game Cook. Um, on Facebook, it's it's also, if you just type in facebook.com slash wildgamecook, you'll find it. But the page, I think, is The Wild Game Cook. I don't post on there as often, but you can communicate via private message or comment on either of those and I'll get back to you. Um, and yeah, so that's got all my contact info from those two things there. And then if you, again, if you're a duck hunter and interested in learning more or getting more involved with Delta waterfowl in Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, um, again, feel free to reach out to me through those channels and, uh, we'll, we'll figure something out. So Nick really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, you've inspired me to try a couple new things as well. So, Excellent, excellent. Yep, we're just pushing each other, trying to hold on to different parts of our new animals and try something new. That's what this is all about. So, John, hold on for just a second. I'm going to let our listeners on out. Folks, I tell you, it is springtime. We're getting out there. We're, we're chasing turkeys, some of us better than others, but at the same time, we're out there chasing them. We're going to be finding those little morsels that are next to us. As life comes back to the woods, we're going to find the the morels if you're lucky enough we're going to find the pheasant back we're going to find the ramps and we're going to find that wild asparagus let's incorporate that into making our dishes absolutely wonderful but while you're also out there make sure you have your tick key or you're making sure that you're spraying down your clothes because ticks are everywhere and the knife that you want to have on your hip of course that is always going to be sharp